You can be dismissed to the nursery and we'll get you over there and get you going on your little lessons and we'll get on our little lessons. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn to the book of Joshua. As you know, we have been coming through the Word of God and laying out the books of the Bible to try to help you uh, with the cohesiveness of the Word of God, helping be able to put it together, uh, really forming the structure of the Bible, showing you how the books lay themselves out. We just finished the first five books of Moses, going a week at a time, starting with Genesis, coming up right through to the book of Deuteronomy. And now we're about to uh, enter into the book of Joshua. And I think probably, <clears throat> for me, Joshua is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And uh, I think it is simply because of the fact that it represents so much of what uh, you and I as a New Testament Christian can really understand about spiritual warfare and the battles that we have to go through in this life. Now, Joshua is written by Joshua, and Samuel writes some of it also. And you're going to find that it has 24 chapters, 18,800. 158 words and uh, 658 verses. And as always, as we come through, I, I like to give you a breakdown of the book. I think that really helps you when you begin to go and study it because it automatically shows you what you're dealing with. And most of the books of the Bible have very simple breakdowns. And uh, when, you, when you put that breakdown at some place in the beginning of that book, you know, in your notes or your margins, whenever, when you begin to read through it the next time, I always look at that first because it helps you figure out, you know, exactly where you're at and what you're dealing with. Like chapter 1 through chapter 12 is the first section. And in chapter 1 through chapter 12, the subject material is the conquest of the land. And you're going to find that those 12 chapters are broken down. Chapter 1 through chapter 5 uh, talks about them going into the land when they entered into it. And uh, then uh, you're going to come through chapter 6 through chapter 12. You're going to have a listing of the battles that they fight to keep that land. Then the second part of it would be chapter 13 through chapter 24. And in that particular passage of Scripture, for those chapters, you're going to find the colonization of the land. You're going to find now where the land, after they have won the battles, the land is divided up. And you're going to find that through chapter 13 through chapter 24. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned last week about the promised land and the concept of the promised land. And I showed you how, and we talked about it for a few minutes, <clears throat> how that the idea of the promised land, most people think that when we study in the Bible and talk about going to the promised land, we think about dying and going to heaven. I don't know how many times I've heard somebody at a funeral talk about when somebody dies, they pass over Jordan and they go home to be with the Lord and that's heaven and they liken that to the promised land. Well, that's not exactly the way it works in the Bible. Historically, the promised land was the land that was given to the nation of Israel. That land was promised to them uh, when God made His covenant with Abraham that land represents for us the kingdom of heaven. We know that from our past studies in preparation for what we're talking about. That land is a picture of their millennial reward. And when they got into that land, the reason why it's called the promised land is because they had to keep the word of God, do what was right with the word of God, or God would take the land away from them. 
In other words, it's a picture of them having the blessings of God. And you'll find that when God gives them the covenant, when God gives them the covenant with Israel, He gives the covenant unconditionally. But we've already seen that the blessings of God are something else. The blessings of God do not come uh, unconditional. The blessings of God come because of what the nation of Israel does what, what the Word of God tells them to do. So we find that the promised land is the land that God gave them, their inheritance. It is the place that God promised them, but they have to live by the Word of God and the promises of God to keep it. And we know what happens. The whole Matthew, uh, the whole uh, Genesis up to this point, and then on through Judges, on through First uh, and Second Samuel, we find where the the kingdom, that land, becomes established. The greatest period in Israel's history is under David and Solomon. Solomon, where that land is laid out in such an marvelous way, it's almost everything that God intended for it to be. But then, what happens after Solomon dies? We find Israel departing from the Word of God, and by the time we get to uh, the end of 2 Chronicles chapter 36, Israel's in great disarray. They're a long way from God, and then God comes down and takes that land from them and enter into the times of the Gentiles, which we've talked about uh, many, many times, not only on Thursday night, but through our, all our other studies. And of course, that's what the promised land represents. It represents the land that God gave them, that they had to keep the promises of God to keep the land. Now, inspirationally, for you and for me, the promised land doesn't represent heaven. The promised land represents exactly what it represents for them literally, but for us spiritually. The promised land is you in this world. And remember, they wandered for 40 years. Last week, our whole message was built around Deuteronomy chapter 1. It said it took them 40 years for an 11-day trip. And I showed you by that that you can learn the Bible as fast as you want. Some of you will learn it very quickly. Some of you have been wandering and will wander the rest of your life. And I told you last week, the determining factor of you learning the Bible or not learning the Bible isn't your circumstances. It isn't your upbringing. It isn't the situations that you find yourself in. It is the determination within yourself to make everything in your life what God wants it to be. You're the only one who can choose that. I can sit down with you hour upon hour, day upon day. I can teach you the Bible till it comes out your ears. But I learned a long time ago that it isn't listening to the Bible that really makes your life successful, what God wants it to be. It's applying what you hear. And that is up to you. So we find that in a practical application, that promised land of what we're about to begin to study, that promised land is a picture of you and me in the wilderness of this world after we're saved. And God has given us a millennial inheritance. I've said it time and time again. When God saved you, He has a job for you. That job is determined, uh, will determine your millennial reward. And we've talked about it many, many times on Thursday night. And the thing that is going to make you successful in your Christian life, and I've said this many, many times, a successful Christian in God's viewpoint is simply a man or a woman who finds out after they're saved what God wants them to do with their life and then spends the rest of their life fulfilling it. And the only way you're going to find it out is through the Word of God, through the promises of God. Hence, the promised land for you and for me represents our life down here. God has given me the blessings of, this, of, this, of, his, of his Son, but I have to stay in the Word of God to keep those blessings. 
And for me, the promised land is living in this world. I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. For me, it is living in this darkness by the light of the Word of God and obeying and loving and following the promises. God gives me the blessings in a world that hates God and all the things that go along with God. Now, that's what we've got here. And when we come to the book of Joshua, my, we're coming to a great book of the Bible. I don't know if you know this or not, uh, but the orders of a book, the order of the books of your Bible are very important. Now, I know if you talk to 99.9999% of the Bible scholars in this world and the pastors in this world, they'd tell you that was ludicrous. That's all right. No problem. They'll figure it out when they get to the judgment seat of Christ. I can take you places in that Bible, and I can show you by the punctuation, by the structure of the chapters, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the millennium, and right on down the line. When God wrote this book, He wrote all of it. He had a hand in all of it. He just didn't preserve some of it as his holy inspired word of God and let mankind of put it in there the way that he wanted it. Let me tell you something. For me, it's real simple. Either it's all the word of God or it's not the word of God. You won't find me in the middle. I either believe it is this. I either believe it's God who is who he said he is or he isn't. And the book is what God said it is or it isn't. And if God didn't give you and I an absolute infallible book, the mind of Christ, the truth of God, by which you and I could find out what God wants us to do, then we're in trouble. Now, I personally, I believe that he did. My whole life's been built around this book. My whole life's been built around teaching people the book. Because I believe the Bible is the fundamental truth in a world that's darkness where there is no truth. And I'm telling you, when you study the order of the books in the Bible, it's an incre incredible Bible doctrines come to light. For instance... I don't know if you know it or not, but look down here. It says in, uh, in verse 1. Verse 1 says, After the death of Moses, Joshua, the son of Nun. Is that what your Bible says? After the death of Moses, Joshua, the son of Nun. Now let me just tell you this. On our listing as we're coming through here, now we've got another type of Christ. Joshua. Remember, I told you when we started. There's 18 types of the Antichrist in the Bible. There's 21 types of Christ. Your next type is Joshua. Joshua is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me show you what I mean. If you would go over to Acts chapter 7, you'd find Stephen's message before he gets stoned. And when Stephen gets stoned in Acts chapter 7, he's preaching to the nation of Israel. And he's preaching them a historical message showing them where they have come from. By the way, while I'm thinking about it, last week uh, when I was coming through the thing there, I told you about the five-pointed star that everybody called the Star of David, and I said it was the Star of Rephidim, the false god from, from back in Amos. Uh, it's not a five-pointed star, it's a six-pointed star, but I'm sure you figured that out already. But anyway, that's just to correct that. But as you're coming through Acts chapter 7, you know what he says? He comes down there, and in the order of the history of the nation of Israel, he says, talking about the book of Joshua, and talking about Joshua in particular, he uses the word Jesus for the word Joshua. Now, every Bible scholar in the world tells you that's a mistranslation. I dare to say if you got a new translation of the Bible other than the King James Bible, it probably says Joshua. And you see, that's how they look at it. They think that if they think that they think they can't grasp the fact that God could write a book because he's smarter than they are. So when they come to the Word of God and they see something that goes against what they've been taught. And I've told you before, my attitude toward the Word of God is very, toward the Word of God is very simple. 
I've studied the Bible all my life, 30-some years. And I'll tell you this right now, I, I believe that then and I believe it now. If anybody shows me anything in the Word of God that goes contrary to what I have believed and what I hold true, if it shows me in the Word of God or anywhere else that, it, that that isn't true, I have no problem with it. I have no pet doctrines with the Bible. I don't have things that I really want to believe. I'll believe anything as long as it's true. You see, the issue in my life isn't, isn't anything but truth. I want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And when you show me the truth, I don't care if I believe something wrong. I'm a big enough person to know that I make mistakes. I know that everything I read, I, might, I, I have the ability to, to make a mistake on. And my philosophy about the Bible is this. You show me something, you show me what the Word of God says, where I'm wrong, I'll buy it in a minute. If I thought tongues was right, and you can show me in the Bible that speaking in tongues was right, I'd thank God that I speak more in tongues with all of you. I wouldn't even be here today. I'd be somewhere in another country rattling off Spanish or Russian getting people saved. I'll tell you something else. If I believed that healing was right today and I had the power to say, come out and get fix you, if I believed that, hey, I'd be, I'd be into this. You know where I'd be? I wouldn't be here today. You know, I never figured this thing out. Why would a guy who's got the power to heal have to rent out an auditorium down there and book it around like that Benny Hoo Hoo Hana, whatever that guy's name is? If you got the power to heal, why do you got to get a tent to get a lot of people to give money? Well, I'll tell you what. You go to every funeral home in this town, every hospital in this town, you go down to Children's Mercy through the cancer ward, you would leave town with so much money that you wouldn't know what to do with it. You know why they don't? Because they can't heal. And they have to confine their sorcery to a little group of people that are dumber than they are. But hey, if I thought healing was right, boy, none of you'd be sick. I'd fix everybody. You think what a time that would be? You see, I'm not, I have no prejudice. I just want the truth. Because I figured it out, someday I'm going to stand before God and He's going to judge me by the truth. The Bible says, Revelation chapter 20, and the books were opened. All 66 of them. And I just want the truth. So when I come back there in Acts chapter 7, and I see it says, Jesus... For Joshua. Now to a scholar who's educated beyond his intelligence, that's a mistranslation. To me, who's a Bible believer, that tells me that every battle and everything in the book of Joshua is a picture of the second coming of Christ. And that's exactly what you've got. Oh, let me show you this. After the death of Moses, the law. Moses represents the law, verse 1. And after the death of Moses, the law. The law's gone. Who shows up? Joshua. Jesus. That's the way it works. In the Old Testament, it was the law. It was Moses. But the Bible says that when Jesus, Joshua, came, he put an end to the law. So what you got in the book of Joshua, not only doctrinally do you have a picture of the second coming of Christ, you have a picture of your life and my life after the Old Testament. My Jesus, the captain of my salvation, Joshua, put away the law, nailed it to the cross, Colossians chapter 2. And now what you've got a picture of in the rest of the book of Joshua is your spiritual warfare, your spiritual battle, and you and I being led by Jesus, Joshua, type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much for scholarship. And, and that's what you got. Historically, you've got the Jews in the land have to fight to keep it. Doctrinally, every one of these battles, and oh, you'll see it, we're going to come through it in a minute. 
is a picture of the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. Joshua fights those battles just like Jesus does in, in Revelation chapter 19 at the second coming of Christ. Inspirationally. Picture of the end of the law, Moses, and the beginning of the New Testament under Joshua, Jesus, the captain of my salvation, the book of Hebrews says, fighting my battles throughout the daily battles of life. Now, this whole book is laid out about around one word, and it's the key word for every Christian. One word, and that word is found in chapter 1. I could preach the rest of the message on chapter 1, but you know, I'm not going to do that. In fact, you know how I ensured that? I'm going to teach all the other chapters first, and I'm going to come back to chapter 1, because I know if I started it now, I'll never get any farther. But let me give you the word so you can think about it. Now, some of you are really worried. You say, wow, if he preaches 40 minutes on the others, and then he comes back on this, we'll be here till 3 o'clock. Yeah, but you've got nothing else better to do today. The word, courage. 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 All right, let's break down this great book. All right, in chapter 2 through chapter 6, you've got in that chapter the crossing over of Jordan and the preparation for the first battle they fight when they cross over. And that's the battle of Jericho. In chapter 2, you have the sending out of the spies. You know this story. The spies go in to spy out the land. They go into Jericho. They go down in the red light district. And there's Rahab the harlot. And she hides them. She's heard of what God had done. She's heard of what God had accomplished with all those other nations. And she knows the judgment of God is going to fall. I ain't got time this morning to show you that's a picture of every unsaved person on this world and God sending in somebody into this world to win him to Christ and to show him Christ. But that's another message. But there's Rahab, the harlot. And she's up there and she makes a deal. And she says to them, hey, look, I'll hide you guys and I'll help you guys. But when you guys come in and your God destroys this place, Remember me and my family. And they simply say this. Here's what we'll do. Because you helped us, because you're on God's side, we won't destroy this place. And anybody in your family that's in this house, they will be protected. But here's what you got to do. You've got to hang out your window a scarlet thread. And when we come in there and we're shooting up the place, we'll see that scarlet thread. Somebody said, that's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Scarlet thread. Not when you understand the New Testament principle. I already told you the book of Joshua is a picture of your spiritual life. Don't you know? Don't you know that that, don't you know the Bible says in the book of Matthew that the Word of God will bind you or loose you? Don't you know that coming through the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it says a threefold cord is not easily broken? Threefold. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When he put that scarlet thread, scarlet, scarlet, same color of the robe that Christ had when he was on the cross, scarlet. When he put that scarlet thread, the Bible says, they said, it was a token and the token of the promise that God has made to you and to me, that when God destroys this world, you and I won't be part of it, is the binding power of that book through the scarlet robe that Christ wore on the cross, that God will deliver us and we won't go through the judgment that the rest of the world does. That's Rahab. That's Rahab. That in chapter 3 and chapter 4, they rest before the battle. They rest before the battle. And in here, this chapter is a great, a great story. They take, the, they take the 12 stones and lay them down in the bottom of Jordan. And the Bible says that's a memorial. And those 12 stones laid down in Jordan picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's 12 stones. 
Now, I don't know if you know this or not. I talked about this a little bit Thursday night. As you come on through the Bible and you learn the Bible, you will add a lot more stuff to it as you grow, and you will find that everything in that Bible, everything in that Bible has something to teach you. I talked to you about the chapters and verse marks, and maybe some of you don't believe that or you don't understand it. You come and talk to me. I'll show you so many, your, your mind will swim. And I'm telling you, I can show you, everybody talks about, well, is it all millennialism or premillennialism or postmillennialism? I can take you back in the Bible from 2 Chronicles chapter 36 to the book of Psalms, and I'll show you the order of the books in the Bible, teaching you and showing you the biblical New Testament doctrine of premillennialism by the order of the books in the Bible. I'm telling you, the more you learn about it in time, the more you just keep learning about it. There's a, there's a theology and architecture. There's a reason why Christian buildings are built the way they're built. And you'll find it in the Bible. There's a, there's a theology of topography, of geography. Every place in the Bible means something. It'll mean something significantly for the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ in the tribulation period. And it'll mean something practically to you and I in our spiritual walk with God. Every one of them. Every one of them. And those 12 stones down on the bottom of Jordan, hey, let me tell you something. That's exactly where they cross Jordan to go into Jericho. And I'll tell you something else. That's the exact same spot Christ is baptized on when he comes in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'll tell you something else. That's the exact same spot that he crosses Jordan at the second coming of Christ before he comes back and kicks a snot at everybody. And you can take it to the bank. That Bible is consistent. And the topography of Scripture will teach you about the Bible an incredible amount of information. It comes in time. You learn what we're, what we're talking about and put it together in time when he talks about Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, Mount Hebron. When he talks about the Nile, when he talks about Ur of Babylon, Ur of Chaldees, they'll all represent something. So in chapter 3 and 4, we have the rest before the battle. The topography of the 12 stones, a memorial put in the bottom of Jordan that marks something. That is a memorial something. Chapter 5. Oh, here's another one. Gilgal. They stop at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal in the Bible represents the place of spiritual maturity. It's like with, with, with Jacob and Bethel. Bethel always represents... The, rep, the time that you and God are so close that nothing can get in between you. Every time Jacob had a problem, he was out of fellowship. You know where he headed? Back to Bethel. Bethel represents the place where you and God are just like that. Then you have Gilgal, the place of spiritual maturity. And for that, for you and for me, that simply means this. There comes a place in your life. I mean, look at verse 9 of chapter 5. God said, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off of you. It's a representation of you breaking out of the old mold of this world. I know when you get saved, you're a new creature and old things are passed away and all things become new. I know that. I know the moment you get saved, you're saved and on your way to heaven. I know that. But you know what? You don't always get shed of all the old things that you got in your life. And I understand that you don't always... One time I was, I, I was watching Johnny Carson years ago as a little kid. And on Johnny Carson, they had a talking dog. And this dog could actually talk. And this 
this was years ago, a lot before some of you were born. And he'd have that dog on there, and he had, the guy would ask somebody something, and, 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 the, and the dog would, 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 would answer him. And he went through, and everybody was just going crazy. So then they wanted a follow-up. So they took it to this guy's house, and he, this dog had his own air-conditioned dog house. He had a swing. He had everything. He even had a little swimming pool. He had everything that he got. And this guy made millions and millions and millions of dollars off of this talking dog. And I'll never forget, Johnny Carson was talking to him, and, and, and they were looking at the dog, and the dog was, you know, doing all these things, you know, and he was talking to everybody, you know, and they'd ask him questions. And it, it ain't like, you know, you know, what's on the house roof and what's on the tree bark. I mean, it wasn't that stuff. He was really talking. And all of a sudden, that dog went into a spasm, and he started scratching, and he started biting, and he started, and, and Johnny Carson said, you know what? I can't believe that. That dog is worth 20 million bucks. He's got all of the stuff that most people don't have, and he's still got fleas. And the owner looked at him and said, yeah, that's so he never forgets he's a dog. And you know, after you get saved, God will leave a few fleas on you. You know why? Because he never wants you to forget what you really are. So he isn't going to take everything off of you. He'll strengthen you by what you go through. But I'm telling you, there comes a point in your life that is represented by Gilgal where even though you may have fleas the rest of your life and you're not going to be perfect and you're going to still do some dumb things, your attitude changes. Oh, I still do dumb things, but my attitude about sin is different now than the day after I got saved. I see sin in my life as a whole different thing. Well, I'm telling you what, I, you, you become so conscious of it that you don't want to do anything that is going to break the walk that you got with God. I'm, I'm not kidding you. Now, maybe some of you aren't there yet. Maybe some of you still run around and, and, you know, with your old crowd, and that's fine as long as you can stay separate. But I'm telling you, there comes a time in your life when you mature from the Word of God that you arrive at Gilgal, and God rolls the reproach of Egypt from off of you. And it isn't a question that you don't still sin. It's your attitude about your sin. Where before you just took sin in stride, now you hate it when you sin because you know that it breaks the fellowship you got with God. And when you come to the place in your life, and I don't care who you are, when you come to the place in your life that your walk and fellowship with God is the most important thing in your life, and nothing, nobody, no relationship, nothing will break it. You're at Gilgal. That's what Gilgal represents. The place where Israel said, we ain't going back. We're going over. Oh, I know we had our problems and wandered for 40 years, but we got it settled. We know who God is, what God is, and what He wants, and I may die in the process, but I'm going to be heading toward God when I fall. That's where it's at. So you see chapter 5. That. And then I think it's very instructive in chapter 5. One of, the, one of my favorite places in the Bible. Remember last week I told you there's places in the Bible I would like to have been, especially at the death of Moses when we talked about that. Here's the second place. Oh, this is one of my favorites. Right after they get the Gilgal, and I can't emphasize the spiritual importance of this, but right after they get the Gilgal and they get the reproach of Egypt off them and they come to the point that they're not going back, look who Joshua meets. 
the captain of the Lord's host. You know who that is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, watch this. Oh, I can see it. I can see it. Old Joshua gets up there early in the morning, has his situation reports. He's had his guys out all night long watching those Ammonites and Philistines down there in the land. Those giants are 30 feet tall. I mean, they're everywhere. They're like ants. And every morning he gets a situation report where they've redone this and rebuilt this fortification. And this one morning, Joshua himself says, well, you know what? I'm going to go up to the forward positions and I'm going to take a look myself. And so he, after the situation reports, he kind of sneaks out, puts his sword in his sheath, you know, and grabs his binoculars and, and, and gets on his camouflage suit, you know. He comes up through that thing and he's sneaking around there and he comes around a rock. And there over that rock, about 50 feet away, he sees some guy standing about 7 feet tall. Big sword in his hand. Shiny. Joshua says, Well, there's one of them giants on our side. Not quite as big as the other one, but you know what? He'll do. Boy, out that time, old Joshua stepped out around that rock, and about that time, that old shiny 33-year-old male looks at him, and Joshua looks at him with that scowl, got his hand down to his sword, and he says, Are you for us? Are you for them? About that time, angel of the Lord crosses his arm and says, oh, really? Who wants to know? Joshua says, I want to know, and you give me any smart lip. You may be taller than me, but this sword will make up the difference. About that time, Joshua, about that time, angel of the Lord says, <laughs> you kind of testy this morning, aren't you, Joshua? He said, what do you mean I'm testy this morning? He said, don't you know who I am? He said, no, who are you? He said, I'm captain of the Lord's host. But that time Joshua said, oh, excuse me, sir, didn't recognize you this morning. <clears throat> Sorry, sir, didn't know you were in the area all day today. You know what he says to him? Oh, Joshua, you ever wonder why you find this in the Bible? He says, Joshua, take your shoes off your feet. Because the ground you're standing on is holy. You realize somebody says that only two times in the Bible? You realize when Moses was back there on Mount Sinai? And he saw that burning bush. And he's up there, you know, and finally, you know, when he starts talking to God at that burning bush, God says, Moses, take your shoes off. For the ground you're standing on is holy. Two places. Once in Exodus, once in Joshua. Once on Mount Sinai, one on this side of Jordan. And I don't know if you know it or not, but those two places mark the beginning and the end of the route of the second coming of Christ. That's the mark, that's the line of march for the Ark of the Covenant, type of the Lord Jesus. That's the battle line that they marched down through the wilderness. And when you study your Bible, you'll find Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, Song of Solomon 3, 6, Numbers 21, Deuteronomy 33, Judges 5, Psalm 68, Habakkuk. You can go on and on and on. You will find that the Lord starts at the second coming of Christ on Sinai, comes up through that wilderness journey, right down the line from Mount Sinai, Edom, up through Seir, up through Paran, up the King's Highway, up the east side of the Dead Sea, across Jordan, and right over Jordan, right there to Jericho, and on Mount of Olives, steps off that horse, the mound claims asunder, and he goes in the eastern gate and crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what you got in Joshua. Two places where God says somebody to take your shoes off your feet. The ground you're standing on is holy. Marks the beginning and the end of the route of the second coming of Christ. Oh, and after that, what do we got in chapter 6? The battle of Jericho. Picture of the battle of Armageddon. You couldn't miss it unless you're educated. 
Right there in chapter 6. We find where Josh, they find where Israel, Israel dumps their worldly concepts. Then they meet Jesus face to face through Joshua. And now they go into their first battle. Now, doctrinally, that is a picture of the nation of Israel in the tribulation period, seeing Christ like Paul saw him, and then going into battle with the second coming of Christ. In a practical application, me and you. When you decide you ain't going back to the world, that's when you really get to meet Jesus. Oh, I know you know him as your Savior. I know you know him and he takes care of you and you pray to him and you read his book. I understand that. But let me tell you something. It's your attitude. And you really want to know him? Every man in that Bible went through the same struggle that you and I went through. From Abraham to Moses to David to Solomon Joseph, every one of them, they start out wanting to do what's right, going through the struggles and the trials, and in every one of them, they come face to face with the Lord, and they have to make a decision. I ain't looking back, I ain't going back. And when you decide in your heart, attitude of heart, God, I'm going to die facing you, and I'm going to go with you, that's when you get to understand him like Joshua who he really is, and then you're prepared to fight the battle, Jericho. Oh, I'm telling you, the battle of Jericho, type of the second coming of Christ. Oh, yeah, look at verse 17, called the accursed city. Revelation chapter 17 calls Babylon the accursed city. Oh, yeah, you got trumpets down there being blown. You got seven trumpets in Revelation chapter 8. Oh, yeah, what do they do? They walk around that city, and they line that city, and they march around seven times. Seven years in the tribulation period. You can't beat it. That battle of Jericho is a picture of the battle of Armageddon, the second coming of Christ, when Joshua meets up with Jesus, captain of the host, right after they decide they're going to do what's right. I wish we could end there, but we can't. Chapter 7, the battle of Ai. And in the battle of Ai, you have Achan's sin. Now, Achan was one of the soldiers. And Achan got in trouble with the accursed thing. And the accursed thing when you come through chapter 7 is some gold and some goodly Babylonian garments. You see, Achan took the spoils of the battle. And he wasn't allowed to do that. Because the spoil of the battles, the Bible says, clearly belonged to the Lord. And what he did, he took what was God's. And he hid it in the floor of his tent. And he thought nobody knew. And when you study it and you understand it, you realize that Israel got into real serious problems because of one man's sin. Now what you got a picture of here is simply this. Every child of God who's involved in the work of God, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. I'm not asking you to be perfect. God's not asking you to be perfect. You can't be perfect. But what you can be is wholly given over to the Lord. That's your conscience of your sin. And Achan is a picture of a child of God in any church who gets into sin and tries to hide it and thinks he hid it. I'm telling you, he dug a deep pit, put that stuff over there, covered it up, put his equipment on it, and I'll tell you what, you walked into his tent, you couldn't, you wouldn't have a clue that there was something buried deep inside that floor. But God knew. God always knows. 
And I ain't preaching on this this morning, but if you want one little title to put above this chapter, just ask yourself this every morning. What do you got hid in the tenth floor? What do you got hid in the tenth floor? What do you got hid in the tenth floor? My Bible says, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if you confess your sin, you get clean. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness. If God's people would follow the concept of being sin conscious and understand that when you sin, you don't try to hide it in the tenth floor, but you confess it open before God and deal with it, you wouldn't have half the problems God's people's got in their life today. Why, when you come over to the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he says that you take the Lord's Supper and you haven't confessed sin in your life, you're taking, you're taking and eating and drinking damnation to yourself, not dying and going to hell, damnation in a literal sense of your flesh. He says, for this cause, the cause that God's people have sinned in their lives and won't get it right. Many are weak, Many are sickly, and many sleep. And I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you right now, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't sin. I'm not getting down on you because you do sin. I sin. We all sin. But I'm telling you, Achan's story in chapter 7 is a picture of don't let the sun set on your sin. Judge it. Confess it. Get it right with God, and then get up and keep on going. Because I'll tell you, when you study this passage, he thought his sin was his own. But when you study verses 4 and 5, you find that innocent people were affected. He thought it was his own. But in verse 13, the congregation lost faith and was affected. He thought it was his deal. But in chapter 7, the spiritual leaders were affected. He thought it was his problem and his sin and nobody else. But in chapter 20, or verse 24, his family was affected. He thought it was him and all his, and it was, because in chapter 5, he was affected. And Achan's killed. And I'm telling you, chapter 7 is a picture of your life and my life and what we have to go through. Then in chapter 8 and chapter 9, you find God's encouragement and strengthening before the next battle. And you know, when you read through that, if there's one thing that these two chapters teach me, and you'll find all kinds of things. I'm just trying to give you the gist of it. So when you begin to read it, you can put these notes down and understand where we're at. Understand the whole concept of the book of Joshua. But if there's one lesson of chapter 8 and 9, it teaches me this. And oh, this is a lesson that we all have to learn. That lesson is simply this. Between where you're at and the final victory, there's always going to be some more valleys. You've got to understand that. I don't care how excited you get about the Word of God. You should be. I don't care how much you want to serve God and you want to be with God. You should. I don't care how elated you get about the Word of God and all of the things that God has given you. You ought to be. You better understand that you're in a warfare. And don't get living so high on the mountain, brother, that the valleys take your blessing from you. In my life, and this is hard to do, and I'm not saying I always do it, but I know this is how I need to approach it. I don't ever look at life with valleys and mountains. I don't ever try to be on a, on a mountain one day because I know the valleys may be the next. You know what I try to do in both cases? Just stay even. I just try to stay on solid ground. I don't get caught up in the... Because I know this. I know that every time there's a major victory in your life, the devil's got a plan to steal that from you. 
And I found that to be true. And I've also found that the best way for me to deal with that is to not get up on a mountain so I'm down in a valley. Just stay even every day and take everything as it comes that God has for me and thank Him for it. I thank Him for the good times just like I do the bad times. And that's tough. You thank God when God's people say good things about you, and you thank God when they say bad things about you. You thank God when they tell the truth about you, and you thank God when they lie about you. You thank God when they give you a raise at work. You thank God when they try to kill you at work. Everything in life, you've got to learn in time that you take in stride. Because where the mountains are are the great victories. And you just look on the other side and say, oh yeah. And I've heard the preacher say, and I've said it myself. Bless God, we may lose some battles, but we're going to win the war. Da, 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 and everybody yells amen. That's true. And then tomorrow you go out the front door, bang, the devil hits you right between the eyes with a two by four. I'm telling you. If chapter 8 and chapter 9 teaches me anything, it teaches me that between here and the final victory, there's going to be a valley or two. And you need to get rest. And you need to get strength when you can for this battle. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you need to put it in your mind, in your heart. We don't have a lot of things that we do here. When we started this church, I wasn't into the mindset of just, of just doing what every other Baptist church does. We don't have a Sunday night service. We don't have a Wednesday night. We have a time on Sunday morning when we get together. We have our Bible study. And I figure if anybody else is interested, I'll work with you at one-on-one -on, -one on your level. But I realize this, and I'm telling you right now, you have to understand how to balance yourself. You have to realize that you need to get rest. But you also need to get strength. Because the battles, the fighting, you've got to go on. And I'm telling you, you need to decide. I, the thing that I was not going to do was to have you at church every time the doors are open just so I can say, wow, look at us. I'm not interested in that. But I will tell you this. The times that we are open, you need to be here. Because I'm telling you, you need rest and you need strength. And if you think, if I think, I can fight this battle without the Word of God in your life, and getting the preaching and the teaching of what you need and the challenging and the rebuke and all the stuff that goes with it, you're crazy. And I'm telling you right now, the man who thinks, the woman they think that they can just forsake what God's doing and do their own thing is going to wind right back up in the world because you need to be strengthened. Yes, I know, you can, you, can, you can get your own personal Bible study. Yes, I know, but you know what? I'm telling you something. God designed church and preaching for one thing. Now, I have a unique ability. And I have the ability to teach and preach at the same time. Some preachers can't preach a lick, but they're great teachers. Some preachers can't teach a lick, but they're great preachers. I'm not fighting anybody. God's given me the ability to do both. You know why? Because I understand that's what it takes. It takes me teaching you to get something and admonishing you. And then it takes me preaching something so you get yourself right with God and stay right with God. God could have chose to do this any way that he wanted to. God chose preaching. God chose the Word of God and gave us preachers, teachers, and all of that for one thing. Because God wants you to look at yourself on a daily basis, 24 hours and 7 days a week. He wants you to look at your life and examine your life in light of the Word of God. And he knows. He knows. 
in the course of the week, we're going to get dirty. Years ago, Kelly came to me when she was in high school, and she wanted to be a cheerleader. Well, I didn't really want her to be a cheerleader because I know what, and I'm not fighting it, because I, I, I know what goes with that thing, you know. And, and we've always tried to set the thing down where, you know, that we, you know, she had friends at school. She didn't go to a Christian school. She went to a public school. She had friends. We had teachers. They knew who we were. We knew who they were. My wife was involved. She was up there as a teacher's aide helping, making sure what was being taught. We didn't, we, we taught, we sent our kids to Christian school. We just didn't, we just, our Christian school was at home before they ever went to public school. And I'll never forget, she came to me and she says, we've had, my, both my daughters, we've had these little conversations. She said, Daddy, I want to be, why can't I be a cheerleader? And you know what? I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't want to make it a bad deal. I don't want to. So here's what I told her. I said, you know what? Years ago before you were ever born, my first real job, I worked at Republic Steel. And I was a hand grinder. Now a hand grinder, no, that's not the guy with the monkey. No, no. I, I, was, I, I was an organ grinder. I was a hand grinder. And I said, what they did is they brought these big, a big crane would come over and drop these thousands of tons of steel bars, about that big, on, my, on these ladles. Me and another guy would take these big turners and we'd turn them and there'd be cracks in them. And our job was to grind out those cracks. And we'd grind out those cracks and then we'd roll them down and roll them off. We'd gr roll another one up, he'd work on one and we'd grind out the cracks. And I'll say, you know what? Every day, I went into that place as clean as I could. And when I come out, I was as black as midnight. There was, there was no filthier place than a steel mill. And I had steel dust all over me. I had dirt. I had, I mean, every time the cranes come over, it just rained dirt and dust. I had it in my hair. I had it in my eyes. I mean, I just, I, I even want, I, did, I, I mean, at the end, I just kind of walked out like this. I mean, it was just terrible. And I'm saying, I said to her, I said, you know what? That's a lot what the world is like. And there are certain places you can go and associate in this world that you can stay clean. And there's other places you go that just by being there, the dirt of this world is going to come down and get on you. And I said, you know what? My goal for you is to always be in situations where on your own you can stay as clean as you can. Because there are places in this world where you can't help getting dirty. But I don't want you to get dirtier any more than you have to making the point that the crowd you associate with, maybe your best intentions are the best intentions, but just like my best intentions going to work that night was to stay clean. But when I come out in the morning, I was filthy. Not because I wanted to be, not because I tried to be. It wasn't that I wanted Barb and my mother and my father to think I worked hard, so I just got dirt and rubbed it on my face so I come out and said, boy, I worked hard tonight. No, it just happened. By me just being there, I was in a dirty place, and when you're in a dirty place, you get dirty. That's why you got to get clean. That's why you got to try to stay as clean as you can. And that's why you need rest, and that's why you need strengthening. And you'll find in this great book, before the battles, every, before and after every battle, God pulls them back and He says, okay, rest and refit. Rest and refit and let me strengthen you. Rest and let me encourage you. 
And he'd walk down through the ranks, through Joshua, and he'd say, good job today. Hold that line a little tighter next time. Boy, you guys really hung in there today. Remember, this is for God. We've got to stay tight. And he would encourage them. And he would encourage them. And that's exactly what every preacher ought to be doing every time you come to the house of God to get strengthened. He teach you how to rest. You teach you how to be strong. You teach you how to strengthen. And when you learn that, my friend, it keeps you in the battles. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you have to decide in your life what is important and what isn't. You have to decide what is going to make you spiritually and what is not. I can't decide that for you. All I can do is say, you know what, here it is, I'll give you, my job is simply this. When I step into this pulpit, or I step down there on Thursday night, or you're in my home and we're sitting in a room together, or around a coffee table, around a kitchen table, or whatever table, my one job is to make sure I am right on target that you can have everything exactly the way God wants. That's my job. Your job is to make sure you're on the other end exact ready to receive what God's got for you. Chapter 10, another battle. You see, the rest between the battles, the battle of Gibeon. Oh, the great battle here that's got them all worried. Because this is the one where the sun and the moon stand still. This is the one in verse 13 that where the sun and the moon actually stand still. And of course, this again is a picture of the second coming of Christ. Because in Revelation chapter 8, you have all the signs in the sun and the moon in the tribulation period. But oh, the scholars like to have a tough time with this. Oh, the men who teach you the Bible want to tell you that Adam and Eve's story isn't true, that there wasn't a real flood. And I'll tell you what, right behind that one, they'll say, well, the, really the sun and the moon didn't stand still. That was just Joshua, and he was so busy in the heat of battle that he just couldn't, he couldn't tell, and it just seemed like it was a longer day, but it really wasn't. Man will spend enormous amounts of energy trying to deny the natural miracles that are found in this book. And then when they're done with that, the next step is to deny the natural miracle of this book. But God's always got us, man. Back in 1890, professor at Yale, Professor Totten, same man, mathematics professor, before he had computers, before he had this, before he had anything that we got today. He had a pencil and a piece of paper. But he had a book that he believed. And because he was in the scientific mind nature, he would go back mathematically and believe what he had in the Bible. You know what he found out? He found out that there's 24 hours missing in our history. Oh, yeah. And the day is July 22nd, 15-whatever-it-is, B.C., and when he come down through there mathematically and figured out, he found out that on Joshua's day, there was 23 hours and 20 minutes in that day that God did what he did. But the Bible says in verse 13, about a whole day, and with 23 hours and 20 minutes, we're still missing 40 minutes. So then the good professor, born again, believed the book, built his teaching in his math studies around the book, went back to Isaiah chapter 38, 2 Kings chapter 20, and found Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's sundial. Remember that, don't you? When his sundial went back 10 degrees, 10 degrees is 40 minutes. There's your missing 24 hours. You see, you won't get that today. But back in the old Philadelphian church age, that was common knowledge. You say, how do you know that? Where do you think I got it? 
Think I'm smart enough to figure that out? Man, I can't add two and two. I'm the only guy in the world who can take the paycheck, sit down with the bills, pay everything, pay everybody else's, and still have money left over. I have no idea what I'm doing with it. Math was my worst subject. Recess was my best one. Math, you kidding me? I never took algebra. I had, a, I had to bribe the teacher to get out of general math class. Algebra, trigonometry, you've got to be kidding me. I couldn't figure it out, but I know where to go. Harry Rimmer, Harry Rimmer, 1930s, wrote a book called The Harmony of Science and Scripture, published by Erdemans in 1936. He goes through that Bible and lays out every scientific discrepancy and shows you where it's at. Could you buy his book today? Not on your life, unless you go to an old bookstore. Some of you found it because you got the copy of it. We talked about it in Bible study a while back. Oh, yeah, Battle of Gibeon. Picture the second coming of Christ, the missing 24 hours in history, July 22nd. Then in chapter 11 and 12, you have the end of section 1. In chapter 11, you have the last northern campaigns where they finish up the, the, uh, the nations up there and wipe them out to take over the land. And then in chapter 12, you get a list of the defeated kings. And this is the kings that Joshua and his people subdue. Then in chapter 13 through chapter 24, as we said in our breakdown, we get into the, the second part of it. And we get into the dividing of the land of the nation of Israel. Now I know when you read this, and I'm just going to give you a little heads up here. I know when you read this, it looks boring, because most of it's pretty straightforward. Few notable exceptions we'll look at here. But in chapter 13 through chapter 24, a lot of it is just this tribe getting this, and this tribe getting that, and this tribe getting this, this tribe getting this. And if you go over to Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, you'll find that all this land is laid out for you over there, and this is where the land grant given to Abraham is, and this is where all that stuff with every tribe gets what his inheritance is. But let me just tell you right now, let me just tell you right now, let me just tell you right now. I'm telling you, you don't have to believe me, doesn't make any difference whether you do or you don't, but I'm telling you this, and I'm telling you. You're also reading your millennial inheritance in there. Don't you ever doubt it for a second. You ain't going to tell me that that book of Joshua is a picture of the second coming of Christ and covers Israel's inheritance, and at the same time, it's a, not a, it's a picture of the battles of life of me and you, and it doesn't cover yours in there? What, am I an idiot? I'm telling you. You may not be able to see it. You may not be able to read your title D. But let me tell you something. If that book's the mind of God and everything in God's mind's in that book, then when God starts writing, I found this out, the most boring things that you think are boring in the Bible are usually the most significant, powerful, deepest truths found in the Word of God. And I'm telling you, you read through there, and I know how you are. I am too. Come there to Joshua chapter... 13, read my Bible through and it's midnight, you know, and you start, you start reading two lines at a time and then three lines at a time so you can get through it. You know, this land gets this and this land is that, you know, and over here and this and that. Oh, I'm tired, you know, and I shouldn't eat that last piece of pizza. And this one over here and they get this and they get that. Now I'm reading a chapter at a time, you know, and now I'm speed reading it, things that this way I can get through it. And you know what? I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. What you're reading is their inheritance and what you're reading inspirationally is your inheritance. You take that for whatever you want to take with it with, I'll see you at the judgment seat of Christ. Now all this stuff in 1324 is pretty straightforward, as I said, with a few notable chapters. Chapter 14. We've got to take time to look at this. Remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in one of the books, but here it is, my old buddy Caleb. My old buddy Caleb. And when you're looking down through here, I want to pick it up down here in chapter 14, my old down verse 6. He says, Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jebnoah, 
the Kezanite said unto him, Thou knowest the thing that the Lord said unto Moses, the man of God, first time that freezes in the Bible, you want to mark that, concerning me and there in Kebish Barna. Forty years old when I, Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kebish Barna to spy out the land, and I brought him word again, it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. Remember when we talked about this? He didn't go in then. He had to wait for 40 years because the people, the people, the people were afraid and wouldn't go. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine inheritance, and thy children forever, because thou hast, mark it, wholly followed the Lord my God. Now, and now behold, the Lord hath kept me alive, and hath said these forty and five years, even since the Lord spake this word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, lo, I am this day fourscore and five years old, and yet I as am as strong as the day I was in the la- a day that Moses sent me, as my strength was then, even so is my strength now, for war to both go out and to come in. Now, therefore, Give me this mountain whereof the Lord spake in that day. For thou heardest that day uh, how the Anakin, those are giants by the way, were there and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave unto Caleb Hebrew for his inheritance. Wow. Let me tell you something. That old boy is something else. That old boy is 85 years old. He'd been around for 40 years, and he still got the fire of God. And when he wants that mountain, you don't see him looking around this time for anybody to go with him. He's going himself, him and God, against the Anakins that have got in the land where he's going, that's in his inheritance, and he says, I want that mountain. And boy, the last thing you sing, old Caleb, is heading up that mountain with probably two swords in each hand and a pack on his back, saying, my Lord knows the way through the wilderness, just send me another in Anakin. And he's up there, and he gets his inheritance. I'm telling you. The key to his life, verse 9, holy followed the Lord. Showing as I said last time, in the midst of the nation of Israel, in a scared and weak people, in the midst of the Laodicean church age, in the midst of a weak, effeminate, wrong motives, wrong attitude, wrong book, Christian world, there are still men and women who are Caleb's, who in spite of the fear of others, want that mountain. And that mountain is defined for you in the book of Hebrews. We don't have time to get into it today, but it's there. Your mountain is in the book of Hebrews. That's your mountain. Chapter 20. You have the six cities of refuge. Now let me explain this very quickly. In the Old Testament, when God set it up in the land, He gave them six cities. Those cities are called the cities of refuge. They're set in there because there are certain laws that God has concerning manslaughter. And the Bible defines premeditated, He defines every kind of murder. But He defines premeditated murder from manslaughter. They call it manslayers in the Bible. And he says this, any premeditated murder, anybody who murders with malice in his heart is to be killed. If somebody accidentally kills somebody, he says put six cities around uh, 20 miles, no more than 20 or 30 miles from, from any place there. And he says that that man can get to those cities of refuge. And if he stays there until the high priest dies, nobody can kill him. And once the high priest has died, he can come back and nobody can touch him. 
It's a, it's a thing where you didn't mean to kill somebody, but you did kill somebody. There was no malice in your heart. You're guilty, but you're not guilty. So if you go to this city, nobody can hurt you. Six of them on top of six mountains. Now in the tribulation period, that's where the Jew runs to. Because in Matthew, he's told to flee into the mountains. In Revelation 12, he flees into the wilderness, into the mountains. In Jeremiah chapter 50, he flees into the mountains. In Micah chapter 7, he flees into the mountains. Those six mountains are right around Jerusalem. And when the Antichrist attacked during the tribulation period, those Jews run to those places in refuge. And that's where Selah Petra is, where God, the rock city, where God takes care of them and feeds them and gives them refuge while the Antichrist is trying to kill them. But you don't have to pay extra for that. You can have it. In the Old Testament, there were six literal cities where a Jew had to run if he accidentally killed somebody through manslaughter. In the tribulation period, that Jew was told to flee to the mountains, and he hangs out there, and God protects him until the second coming of Christ. Chapter three, chapter 23 and 24, Joshua's farewell address. Remember last week I told you, the most important things you'll find in the Bible, the last things people say. And this great chapter is a picture of how you and I will be successful as a Christian. Joshua, in his last address, he warns the people about three things. And it's the same three things that I can say to you. Because Israel is so parallel to the Christian church today. Israel was in their apostasy before they fell, before the first coming of Christ, just like the church is in apostasy before the second coming of Christ. And Joshua warns them in three ways. And I'm telling you, these three ways are the marks of success for any Christian, anywhere, any place, any time in history. The first thing he says is don't forget what God did for you. Second thing he says, don't forget what God said to you. And the third thing is, don't forget where God brought you from. If you put those three things in your life, and you get those three things down, you will never stray far from where God wants you to be. Don't ever forget what He did in your life since you've been saved. Don't ever forget what He said in that Bible. And don't ever forget where He brought you from, where He found you, and where He brought you to, and what He's done for you. And that brings us right back to chapter 1, and then we're done. I told you I was saving chapter 1 for last, because chapter 1 is the key word to this whole book. We've seen the battles. We've seen how to fight the battles. We've seen the rest and refitting between the battles. I've given you the doctrinal application, the practical application. If you just take this tape, or however you do it, and you go through the book of Joshua and put your notes in, you'll have 75% of the book. You can come back and put the rest of it together as you keep learning about the Bible. But here you go, Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. And after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, showed you a picture of death of Moses, the law, then Joshua, Jesus, Acts chapter 7. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, on the land which I do give them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, I have, that I have given unto you, as I said unto Moses. I want to stop right there, look at verse 3. Look how he's talking. He's talking in the past tense. He's talking like they're already in the land, and they are not in the land yet. He says, this land, I've already given it to you. They're not even in it yet. He hadn't given them anything. He just said, it's yours, you can have it. He's talking like they're already there. You see, that's how God does it. Because God is so sure that He's going to take care of you 
and he is so sure that if you do what I'm about to tell you, that you will never have a problem in your life being kicked out of the blessings of God. That's how sure it is. And he talks in the past tense. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given, given, given unto you, past tense, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness of this Lebanon, even to the great river, even Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down to the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. You take that verse and put it right between your eyes. He's talking to you. Here it comes. Be strong and of a good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded them. Turn not from it to the right hand nor to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then, then, and I'm going to add my own preface here, and only then, Shall thou make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong, and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. He gave them that charge before they took on the giants. Before they ever crossed Jordan. Before they ever set foot. He said, that land is yours. I've already given it to you. He says to you, hey, I saved you. The millennial inheritance is yours. I've given it to you. Every promise in that book is yours to get you through everything you have to go through. Israel, don't worry about the giants. Don't worry about the enemies. Don't worry about those nations. To you, don't worry about your friends. Don't worry about your enemies. Don't worry about your people at work. Don't worry about the devil. Don't worry about everything that is in your life that's going to stop you. Courage. Courage. Good courage. Three ways you've got to have courage. Verse 6. Be strong and a good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance of land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. You know the first courage you've got to have? You've got to have courage to believe what God said. He told them that, but they weren't there yet. You know what? It takes courage in the day and age we live in for a man or woman to say, You know what? I got the Word of God and that's all I need. Years ago, a friend of mine, Billy Bartlett, Great Bible teacher. Great guy. He was over in Ireland. And he met Ian Paisley. Well, I don't know if you know who Ian Paisley is, but Ian Paisley was a Baptist preacher that took on the whole Republican Irish Army. And Ian Paisley was a great soldier. And Ian Paisley was, was plastered in his country as a, as a militant, you know, and a revolutionist and all that stuff by the Catholic media and the Catholic government. But let me tell you something. Ian Paisley was a firebrand over in Ireland. And he took on the Irish Catholic Republican Army single-handedly when they were blowing things up, killing people, drive-by shootings. Ian Paisley stood like a lion for the truth. Came to America. Bob Jones University. Great apostate Bible college. Linked up with Ian Paisley. Brought him over. Had him preach. 
pampered him. Give him everything in the world. Made a big to-do about it. <clears throat> Got him in the country. Wrote his success. Wanted everybody in the world to think that they were like him. They ain't no farther from the truth. They were the greatest enemies of the Word of God. I know. I've been there. Greatest enemies of the Word of God in Christianity you ever saw in your life. My old buddy Billy Bartlett went up to Ian Paisley. He said, Brother Paisley. Now, you got to remember, at this time, the leader of Bob Jones University was Bob Jones, the second. He goes up to Paisley and he says, Brother Paisley, I've heard you preach. You take a stand over here. You're one of the greatest Christians in our, in our era. Let me ask you a question. What do you believe about the King James 1611 authorized version? I've never heard you say. Brother Paisley looked at it and said, I believe it's the absolute, perfect, inerrant word of God. But don't tell Dr. Bob I said that. Now here's a guy that took on the whole Irish Republican army. Been bombed out of churches, shot at, had assassination contracts on him, can take on the whole, but he's afraid of what one of his brethren will think about that book. It takes courage to believe that book. You know why? Because this day and age you're going to get laughed at. They're going to make fun of you. Some of these apostate preachers or some of these idiot stick, Twinkie Pie, popstickle Christians, they don't have a clue. Hey, let me tell you something. Anytime you think you've got big britches about the book, you come to me. i got ten questions I'll give you, and I'll give you $1,000 for any one of them you can answer. Not you, nor you, nor you. <laughs> but some of you. So just put her down, boys. I saw your eyelids go up. Forget it. <clears throat> Not you. You hung out with a heretic too long. You're as corrupted as I am. But I'm telling you. I'm telling you, it takes courage to believe that book. Courage. In a world that doesn't believe it anymore. I don't know if you saw the star this morning. You see the star this morning? Big article in there. Two, two idiots stick. The question is, do we have, how did it go? Do we have an absolute standard today? And the one guy was a Unitarian. Oh, he thinks everything is... He said, all religions are a piece of the puzzle that gives us the great picture of God. Oh, i got to write that down. <laughs> Next time I preach in a Unitarian church, I'll use that. The other guy was from the Midwest, Southwest by Northwest Paganism Baptist College down here. He says, yes, there's absolute truth. But we're not sure where it is. You know why they say those things? Well, they ever said, yeah, that book is truth, thy word is truth, they wouldn't have any friends left. They wouldn't be classified as scholarly. They'd be laughed at and made fun of. That's okay. That's all right. You know why? It takes courage to believe the book. It takes courage in the Laodicean church aid to stand and say, I don't care what you say. I am more afraid of God than I am the face of man. Now that's what it takes. And I'll tell you what, I don't want everybody in this church. We'll probably never have church much more than maybe 100, 150. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. I don't care. I tell you all the time. I'm telling you. We don't have a sign up. I don't have a website. We don't have a steeple. We don't have, a, we don't have anything. We got a piano player and an organ player and a sound system and you, but we have a book. And I'll tell you what, in the day and age that we live in, you know what I'm looking for? I don't got time to argue with you. I'll help you if you're sincerely, but you know what? Those days of my life are over. I used to take them on and have fun with them, and that's great. But you know what? I'm interested in one thing in these last days. 
one thing. Male and female, Caleb's. 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 Men and women who say, Bob, I want to learn the book. I got the courage. I'll stand for it. I'll believe it. I'll take it. Teach me, and I'll do something in these last days. And the last time I see you, you're heading up that mountain with a sword in your hand, brother, and a smile on your face. God would by your side, and you're saying, I'm going to claim my inheritance. Courage to believe the Word of God. Verse 7 and 8. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand nor to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Courage to believe the Word of God. Courage to obey the Word of God. It's paramount. Find out what the Word of God says. Make its principles your principles. Its definitions your definitions. When the Bible says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, take it, put it in your mind, and make His thoughts your thoughts. His way your ways. His opinion about everything in life your opinion. Courage to believe it. Courage to obey it. Verse 9. Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Courage to believe the Word of God. Courage to obey the Word of God. Courage to rest in the Word of God. You're in a battle. And you better figure out where to get rest and where to get strength. You shouldn't need me to tell you where you get them. But I'll tell you, a lot of God's people get their whacked out priorities all out of place and then they wonder why they've got the problem in their life or they don't have the victory in their life or they don't have this in their life. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, courage to rest in God's Word. Years ago, I used to run a lot. Don't run much anymore. Just enough to keep me, my arteries open. But I used to run a long way. And I learned something. I ran because I read in the Bible that we that we're in a race. And I figured, well, that's probably good exercise, so I'm going to start running. So I ran, and I ran, and I ran, and I ran. And you know what I learned? As I studied that thing, I understood how that thing went together. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 12 said, I am to run the race that is set before me. And I would run, and I would run. And I could never figure out how these guys could run. I read, I read about those, those uh, African guys over there, you know, the uh, uh, Zulus. Man, those guys would run 38 miles a day, 38 miles a day, and then fight a pitch battle when they got there. Man, I run down the street, and I'm ready to call for Barb to come pick me up in the car. I, I couldn't believe it. And then as I ran and ran and ran, you know what I learned? I learned that while you're running, you learn how to rest while you run. You get your body to such a degree that even though you're still running, what would absolutely matter, and that's the way it all is. Everything is. You, you just understand how the basics work and you get your body so in tune that running fast and then when you need a break, normally we stop and walk or fall down. In Jamie's case, fall down and puke. <laughs> Never forget the first time she said, Dad, I want to go running. I said, Honey, you can't. Dad, I want to go running with you. Dad, honey, you can't. Daddy, I want to go. All right, come on. We didn't get two blocks down the road. She's over there puking up breakfast down along the side. And I'm sitting down there saying, How's the run going? <laughs> 
But you see, you get moving and your body gets so in tune, you can actually keep running and yet rest while you're running. And that's the key to the Christian life. There's never a time you're not in this race. There are some rules to this race. One of them is stay between the white lines. Another one is no false starts. Another one is run the course. Don't be cutting off across the field. You're in a race. And you're to run this race. And for years and years and years I wondered, what does he all mean by that? You've got to get tired when you're running. You learn how to rest in this book, in the midst of the race. And that's it. I'm not out. I'm not out to wear you out. I'm here to work you out. I'm here to give you everything you need. I'm not going to beat you over the head to the place where we just, we just, no, no, no. You have families. You have little children that you're responsible for. I'm not. I'm responsible for mine. You're responsible for yours. The Sunday school down here, we do it for your kid to try to teach them. But don't ever think that the Sunday school is responsible for teaching your kids the Bible. You are. That's your job. You have families, gentlemen, and you need to minister to those families. When you have time on Sunday night, you ought to be spending time with them in the Bible or at least doing something with them as a family. I don't mean you always have to be in the Bible, but you ought to, as a spiritual leader of your home, you need to understand how to encourage your own family, how you learn to rest, how you learn to balance out. Well, I got to have this. I don't need this. I got to get this. I don't got to get this. I'm going to rest here. No, no, I've got to get encouraged and strengthened here. You've got to understand what your spiritual diet will allow. And you have to get what you need to get. And then you rest in the process of letting what God does for you come in and give you all that you need. But the key word, my friend, which is what the book of Joshua is all about, your spiritual warfare, courage. Courage to believe the book. Courage to obey the book. And courage to rest in the book. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bring forth his fruit in his season. His season. You're like a tree put here to bear fruit, but you have a season. And there's coming a time, everybody can see it, Orange, orange trees don't bear oranges in February. Cherry trees don't bring cherries in January. You have a season to your fruit bearing. A season to your fruit bearing. And while you're here, planted in this earth as the tree of God, your job and my job is to bear fruit. Planted by the river of his waters, bringeth forth his fruit in this season. His leaf also shall not wither. No dying on the vine for God's people. No getting complacent. His leaf shall not wither, and whithersoever he goeth shall prosper. That's Joshua. That ought to be us. That needs to be us. And it all comes down to one book and your attitude about it. Courage to believe it. Courage to obey it. Courage to learn to rest in the race. Every head bowed and every eye closed.